Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Well, you've given us um, a little bit of insight now as to what we know of Bedem. Bedem. We'll continue doing that throughout the podcast. That's okay. He won't (laughs) Betham as a pastor, we've now looked at her more specifically as a preacher, but now we want to know um, what we know of Betham as a hymn writer or as a catechizer. Right. Well, this is a huge part of his life, and really, I don't think it's going to matter to him. Uh, We lost Austin there. Um, How how we we say his name, Uh, he is on to other things. He's on to bigger and better things now in heaven. Um, So... Yes, if we have to pick, you know, what would come after preaching with Bedham, uh, hymn writing would be it. But when we go to hymn writing, we're really not leaving preaching. Uh, we are we're still at his at his desk. We're still preparing sermons uh, on a weekly basis. Bedham would try to compose a hymn that would coincide with the sermon and would drive home the points of the sermon to be sung by the congregation after the sermon. Um, they would uh, they would probably sing by lining out the hymn. And you know, you and I we have we have a hymn book or we have a a, a screen in front of us and we're singing there. Uh, they would have a, a man who would call out the hymn by line. So they would sing one line. He'd, he'd sing one line. They'd sing it back. He'd sing a line. They'd sing it back. It would take a little while to get through that thing. Um, but Bedham was committed to writing hymns after or for every sermon. Now, we don't have, uh, that would mean 55 years. That would be a lot. <laughs> we don't We don't have a hymn for every sermon for Bedham. So we don't know, you know, he may have just fallen short of his goal, but that was what he strove for. But we do have in print over 800 sermons by this man. And um, many of them are wonderful sermons. Uh, some are some are written in, in such a meter that it would be like almost impossible to sing. Um, but for those listeners, those of your listeners who know a little bit about music, you know, most of them are like in what it's called long meter or common meter or short meter. And they would easily go to, you know, tunes that we would know today. So, you know, I can pick it off my shelf and I can just say, hey, we're going to sing this to the tune of Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing or something like that. And we can we can work through that. But he would make this this a, a regular weekly offering. And uh, in fact, what's interesting about Bedham is uh, he dies when he dies in 1795. Uh, he was at his house working on his message, composing a hymn. 
Um, and uh, the, the, the hymn that he was probably composing for the following Lord's Day, one of the lines out of it is this, God of my life and of my choice, shall I no longer hear thy voice? Oh, let that source of joy divine with rapture fill this heart of mine. Thou openst Jonah's prison doors. Be pleased, O Lord, to open ours. Then will we to the world proclaim the various honors of thy name. Imagine that. The last line of his life here, shall we no longer hear your voice? He dies. What does he hear next? The very voice of Christ. The very welcome of his Savior into his eternal home. Um, one of my favorite hymns that Bedham has written, uh, it's in the Trinity Hymnal. I think there are about two or three hymns of his still used today. At the turn of the 20th century, uh, from the 19th to the 20th, there were about a hundred of Bedham's hymns still in use in, in many churches. But today they've fallen uh, well out of use. Um, Shout for the blessed Jesus reigns. It addresses the issue of the spread of the gospel to all the nations of the world, which is uh, uh, something that was certainly on his uh, on his on his heart. Um, so he was a hymn writer, and he was also a catechizer. You mentioned his uh, his work of catechism, and um, <clears throat> so we have the catechism, the Baptist catechism from the late 17th century, that's commonly called Keech's catechism. Uh, probably wrongly called Keech's Catechism, uh, William Collins, uh, who pastored along with Nehemiah Cox, the Petty France Church in London. William Collins, I believe it was the 1793 assembly that commissioned Collins to write a catechism that would express in catechetical form the doctrines of the Second London Confession. And as far as we know, Collins does actually... Um, uh, write that, and um, uh, but for various reasons, Keech is, is the name that gets connected to the catechism. So that's fine. I don't think Collins minds either. So all these things we worry about while we're alive. We don't worry about when we're dead. Um, but the catechism is the tool that Bedham uses for his scriptural exposition of the Baptist catechism. All right. So Bedham is concerned with the uh, lack of catechizing going on in the churches, the lack of the lack of Bible knowledge, biblical literacy, and so he takes the catechism, and he apparently finds the catechism itself um, somewhat lacking. And so one of the things that was happening in these days, uh, this had been uh, promoted by Matthew Henry back in the 17th century, the Puritan uh, theologian and pastor scholar. Um, uh, Henry had written an exposition of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, Bedham makes great use of that. There are some places where he just basically copies and pastes and puts that into his exposition and uses that um, back before maybe some of the days of plagiarism or whatever, plagiarist rules, and uh, it was just kind of acceptable to do this, I suppose. And he obviously baptizes the Shorter Catechism and makes it a good Baptist catechism. And, um, but so what they would do is where you have one question in the catechism, Bedham would then take scripture texts and questions that he's developed 
maybe 10, 15, 20 more questions with scriptural answers to support uh, that particular question. And it just expounds upon that particular catechetical question and answer. And we've actually been using this in our own church for the last, I don't know, um, eight years, seven years. Uh, we're now, uh, this past Sunday, we finally got to question 109. I mean, it's it's rather long when you just consider the, the catechism itself is, you know, 120 plus or so questions. Um, and his exposition adds a good 10 to 15 questions to each one of those. Uh, sometimes it's 30, 40 questions and scriptural answers. It gets, it's rather lengthy. And uh, we just take a few of those each week and read those before the service and um, really uh, can be very encouraging. Right now we're going through uh, the Lord's Prayer. And uh, this past Sunday we started to look at the petition in the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom Come. And he has, you know, a good 20 or 30 questions and answers from the scripture to exposit that, exposit that more. Um, this uh, this exposition of the catechism was received well uh, within the broader particular Baptist community. Uh, it is uh, published in 1752, I think. And then it's published again under the direction of Hugh Evans. Uh, at the Bristol Academy. It's published again in 1776 by the Western Association, which is where the Bristol area was. And um, it, is, it is promoted by, by the Western Association. Uh, and um, uh, th there's, a, uh, there's a letter that goes out by Evans in uh, uh, 1776. It's the Western Association's circular letter. And Evans has something, at the end of the circular letter, Circular, circular letter, we're going to get that out. Um, <clears throat> they have a section called advices. And basically this would be like, you know, the announcements <laughs> in your bulletin. All right. The things they want to send out to the churches. And this is one of the advices. The churches are desired to take notice that at their repeated request, a new edition is printed of that excellent little body of divinity, a scriptural exposition of the Baptist catechism, by our brother B. Benham. So the churches in the Western Association have been asking the association to publish this again. The association responds, they're going to publish it. Uh, it's been out of print. As the reprinting of this catechism will be attended with a very considerable expense to the author, it is hoped the several churches will take a competent number of them to keep by them for future as well as present use. So they want them to, to purchase them, buy them, use them. And that's in 1776. A few years ago, um, Solid Ground Christian Books, Mike Gadosh. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Mike. I'll have to tell him later I pushed his books. But uh, uh, Mike, uh, they, they, they printed another copy of this uh, a few years back. And it is a facsimile, I believe, of the 1776 edition. Uh, so some of the errors that were found in the 1776 are still in the current one. Uh, I'd love to see a new edition in a more modern typeface, maybe with a uh, new American standard or even ESV uh, text put in there uh, and, and brought the, and those promoted to the churches. Uh, there's a brother uh, down in uh, uh, Peru. 
that is trying to do one of these in, um, I'm not sure the actual language, I would just say Spanish, but then again, I'm not sure exactly what it is down there. Um, but he's trying to print another one. He and I have talked about this, and uh, I don't know what the latest status is on that. Um, he's asked if I would uh, write an introduction for it. So we'll see if that happens, and uh, that's something that he has kind of in the works. So that's a little bit about him as a hymnist and a catechist. And um... You had um, spoken earlier of how um Bedham had potent or had relations with the the great revivalist and evangelical George Whitfield. Mm. Um how did Bedham experience revival in Borton and what was happening there? What was Bedham's involvement and what can we learn today from from his experience? Well yeah, Bedham uh when he got to Borton in 1740 um he refers later in a, in a writing that he, he does around 1750, he speaks of the church being unsettled and divided. So it had gone through some difficult years. And when he gets there in 1740, he, uh, he goes to work. But by the time he writes in 1750, uh, that is the case no more. Uh, the church has become well-established and is, is, well, is well-grounded. And one of the things that happens... In the 1741-1742 time frame, and remember, this is the period that Bedham is on probation, and uh, he is not officially the pastor. But be that as it may, during those years, or that main year of 1741, uh, they have uh, nothing short of a revival in Borton on the Water. And this would have been during the days of the evangelical revival there in England. Uh, keeping in mind that when we when, when we're in England, we usually use the term evangelical revival, all right, because it's an evangelical it's a revival of evangelicalism within the Church of England that is like practically dead in many ways. Um, <clears throat> in America, we refer to it as the Great Awakening, uh, but in England, it's often called the evangelical revival. And uh, dissenters those out of the Church of England, are often rather suspicious of the evangelical revival because it's coming out of the Anglican Church. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's an old statement by John Gill. I'm going to get it wrong. But it's, it's, it's something to the effect of, you know, can anything good come out of the Anglican Church? You know, uh, it, it can't be a real revival because it's coming out of the Anglican Church. It sounds like Philip, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And, uh, well, apparently so. And uh, great things did happen in those, uh, in those days. Uh, the membership of the church in Borton, just to give a little bit of a numerical idea, the membership of the church in Borton at this time is about 100 people. And over the course of that year, about 40 people, in addition to those 100, about 40 people come to Christ. So if membership of your church is 100 and 40 people come to Christ within you know, a few months of one another, uh, something, something's going on. And it's interesting to look again in the church books and to see the names of these people written in and when they joined. Um, and so, uh, so that becomes kind of a, a, kind of a catalyst for him during these, during these years. It's also interesting to note that uh, during this time, 
Betham obtains a copy of Jonathan Edwards' work, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God. So in that work, Edwards is trying to analyze what's going on in the Great Awakening in America. And he's trying to say, you know, is this really a revival? Is this really a work of God? Or is this just maybe some kind of a manifestation of feelings or something like that? How do we distinguish what are the true marks of real revival? Well, Edwards is interested in this in America. Bedham is interested in this in Borton on the Water. Uh, because he has all these people coming to Christ. And you can imagine, pastorally speaking, what do you do with this? And this is not a 21st century, you know, pragmatic Baptist we're talking about here. Oh, great. Everybody's made decisions. Well, let's just get them in, sign the card, dunk them, and add them to the roll. All right. That, that's not the way they were doing things back then. Bet them. Bedham is pastorally overseeing this congregation, wanting to make sure the people that he brings into the church are truly regenerate believers. All right? So he's analyzing their conversions, uh, which by modern standards would be like, well, who are you to sit in judgment of these people's conversions? And Bedham would say, I'm the guy that's supposed to do that. That's my job. My job is to look at you when you come in and make sure you're not just a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, all right? My job is to judge. My job is to analyze. My job is to hear. My job is to pray and be concerned. I want to protect. I don't want to add 40 to the 100 if the 40 added to the 100 are false. That will just pervert the 100. And we'll be back like we were you know, a few years ago, divided and dead. And so he... Uh, and it's, it's interesting to look through the church books as well and to see Bedham's intense scrutiny of people uh, having them recount their conversion stories. And the congregation, not only Bedham, but the congregation as a whole would weigh their conversion narrative and would be in a position of sitting in judgment on their relation on their relation of their own conversion and they would they would be called to 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 decide to vote do you think you know sister sally's conversion is genuine no we don't um she needs to wait for six months and come back and tell us again and they would do that they would have people wait and come back and and people would submit to that you know nowadays uh you know, you're you're fortunate if you get somebody that's willing to you want to hear my conversion story? Hmm, I don't know if I want to tell you. You know, why wouldn't you want to tell them? And so uh, he will. Uh, he would have them write it out. He would have them verbally give it. He would record it in the uh, in the in the in the church books. And so that's always that's just fascinating for me to to read. Uh, he's very concerned about the authenticity of these people's conversions. Um, oh, what else to say in here about this? Uh, he also tastes of revival in the uh, 1750s and the 1760s. It seems that the first three decades of his ministry uh, experienced great revival. And the last three decades of his ministry, sadly, do not. Uh, there is a, uh, a small inclusion of people in the 1786 to 1790 time frame. But other than that, he makes the comment at one point in time, 
Um, I don't know if I can find it in my notes here. But uh, he talks about the waters not being stirred. In other words, nobody's getting baptized. And he's brokenhearted by that. He's very concerned about that. But he doesn't know what to do. Uh, in those last three years of life, um, this kind of jumps ahead in some of the questions you guys asked me. Uh, but what does Bedham know about suffering? Um, he, he does have a decline in health. Uh, he does have an increase in controversy in the church. There is, there is some concern with a fellow elder that he has at one point in time. And that seems to hamper his joy in ministry. Uh, he has a fellow elder at one point in time who has a wife who is a paedo-baptist. It seems that Bedham begins the first three decades of his ministry as a closed communion Baptist. Um, I don't know how strictly it would have been closed. Probably they would have opened it up to, to Baptists from or people or believers from like faith and order churches, uh, which in those days would have been a Baptist church because um, everybody else was a Methodist or a Presbyterian or you know something like that. Um, but he was closed the first three decades. Toward the end of his ministry, he moves to an open position. And it seems at one point that he shifts on this in order to accommodate this fellow elder who has a paedo-baptist wife who can't take communion. Uh, you can imagine how the conversations must have gone on Sunday afternoon when they go home from church and she can't take communion again. And uh, just, you know, she nudges him a little bit over and over and over and he keeps working on Bedham. And um, there's there's also some controversy that develops with uh, another fellow elder. They, they're, they're, they know he's getting older. They're trying to find someone to come along and kind of take his spot. Uh, but he's really struggling with... Uh, uh, these other men, and it's it's unclear to me whether or not this is a weakness in Bedham himself, or this is a weakness in these men who are trying to press an older man out of service. I, it, it's difficult to tell without actually being there. Uh, you can read about some of this in the church minute books. Some of the writing is in Bedham's own hand. Some is in the hand of another individual. It's unclear who it is. Um, so those are some difficulties. And so there's revival early on. There's revival toward the end or not. There's, there's not revival toward the end. And um, there's a, you can, you can almost sense as well. Um, some of Bedham's struggle physically in some of the things that he'll write or say in those days, which is, which is understandable. I mean, we're all, you know, what is uh, the best of men are men at best? And uh, if you're not feeling well, then you're it's probably going to show up somewhere. And if you're not feeling well for a long time, uh, toward the end of Bedham's life, they're having to carry him to church in uh, what would have been called a sedan, kind of a kind of a little box that he would have sat in, and they would have had someone in the front, someone in the back, and carry him to the church. And uh, makes me think of uh, Calvin. Uh, Calvin, toward the end of his ministry, was they, they carried him to church, they propped him up in the pulpit, and then took him home. And so, but if your pastor's John Calvin, then I'm sure that's worth that, you know. So you just you just do it. Well, they loved Bedham, and they were willing to carry him to church. And uh, so that was a, that was a difficult period those last years of his life.
Thank you for sharing about uh, some experiences that Betham went through at Borton. Um, you mentioned previously his commitment to associationalism. So can you share with us about Betham's usefulness in the Midland Baptist Association? Yes, yes. Uh, well, <clears throat> earlier we talked about John and Bernard, John Betham, his father, and Bernard Foskett, one of his mentors. Um and their commitment to associationalism. And this is, uh, this is certainly one of the areas that this rubbed off on Bedham himself. Um, he, is, uh, he is well regarded uh, by the Midland Association. Uh, they see him as uh, eminently useful uh, to them. Uh, they have him uh, preaching and uh, serving uh, as moderator, writing the circular letter. Uh, there, are, there are three circular letters that Bedham writes, and uh, this was an interesting uh, find uh, to me, was I kept reading about the two circular letters of Benjamin Bedham. Uh, they were 19, or seven, I keep saying 19, 1753 and 1765. And uh, when, I was, when I was at the Angus Library, oh, four years ago or so, 2016, 17, um, I took literally, I don't know, thousands, maybe like 5,000 pictures of documents. And uh, it, it took forever when I got home to go through all those documents that I had taken pictures of. And obviously I didn't, um, I didn't pay attention like I thought I was. And it was a few years after my trip to England uh, that I was going through some old photos and I came across a letter and I thought, what is, what is this? And I began to read it and I realized this is a circular letter and the circular letter would often have like at the top, it would have a list of the churches that were present. It would have a list of maybe a summary of the association's doctrine. It would have, you know, comments for a page. And then at the end, it would have uh, the advices we mentioned earlier, kind of like those announcements. And I began to look through this. Then I looked up some other things. And pretty soon I realized that what I was holding in my hand was a third circular letter written by Benjamin Benham. I had no idea. And um, I, uh, I remember corresponding at that point with, uh, with Michael Haken. And I said... I said, I think I've just found something really cool, you know, silly things that academics get excited about. And I told him, I said, I think I found a circular letter written by Benjamin Bedham. He replied, you know, something to the extent of, wow, <laughs> you know, I don't know what he would have actually said. Um, I can look back up the, the emails, but he was excited too. I then emailed that to him. Uh, he had one of his, uh, guys transcribe it. And um, sure enough, that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a third circular letter written by Bedham. And so that was a real, that was a real prize for me to find. But we, we mentioned earlier, he preaches, uh, he preaches for them uh, 17 times in the, in the, the 46 years or so that he attended the meetings. Uh, he serves as the moderator uh, five different times for the association, writes three circular letters, um, he is, uh, he, he keeps record also in the church books. He would transcribe 
the associational circular letters. So I have I have handwritten copies of circular letters for the Midland Association over the course of about 40 years of the uh, of the 18th century because Bedham, when he got a letter, he would just copy it down. And I would imagine that other pastors may have done this in their churches too uh, because they didn't have, you know, photocopiers. They didn't have scanners and things such as that. They would have to do it all by hand. And uh, Bedham was a, he was a committed penman, we could say. He wrote voluminously in the church books. Uh, one day people are going to look back at all my years of ministry in my church and wonder, did they ever do anything? Because I don't write anything. You're going to have to go through emails and my files on my computer to find stuff. There's very little, if anything, that's handwritten. Uh, but for Bedham, it was all there in written form. And so that's a, he was, a, he was, he was invaluable to the brothers there. And uh, they said many wonderful things about him in his, uh, in his years of service. When answering the question about Benjamin's friends, you, you name-dropped several people, um, including Andrew Fuller, William Carey, Samuel Pierce, um, John Sutcliffe, Ryland Jr., all who were very much involved with what would become the Baptist Missionary Society. Can you share with us Benjamin's involvement with that or, or thoughts on that? Yeah, his involvement or the lack thereof. And um, yeah, <clears throat> Bedham, uh, Bedham was not a supporter of the Baptist Missionary Society. And uh, some have used that against him in his ministry to say that he was not of an evangelical spirit, uh, that he had no concern for, for the nations beyond England. Um, Samuel Pierce Carey, I believe the grandson of William Carey, Samuel Pierce Carey uh, wrote a book um, in the early 20th century called The Baptist Brainerd, and it was a tribute to Samuel Pierce, um, who, who, who should have had a tribute written to him. I mean, he was a wonderful, wonderful brother and devoted servant of the church's and again, died at a very young age of 33 after being in the ministry for like nine, nine years or so. Um, <clears throat> in that book uh, of, of Carey's regarding Samuel Pierce, he mentions Benjamin Bedham. And the way he mentions Bedham is he refers to him as the aged Bedham. And just like an old dying man, and in many ways he probably was an old dying man. I mean, he was he was probably uh, this was 1794, 93 somewhere in there that uh, Samuel Pierce would have gone through the area of Borton on the Water, trying to raise interest in the Baptist Missionary Society, and he finds Bedham there, and Bedham was an older man, and he was rather ill and and not uh, uh, not. Uh, as engaged probably as he would have been back in 1740 when the revival first hit Morton on the water. But the man in 1740 who had a heart for revival, reading the work of men like Edwards, fellowshipping with men like Woodfield, uh, connecting with men like Thomas Cole and Gloucester, that man, though old, was still the same man. 
and still had a hunger for the gospel to go out to the nations of the world. Um, you could, you could, we could go back and and read the uh, the, the verse that was written by him just days the, the day that he dies, uh, written for his congregation the following week, uh, pleading with the Lord that they might hear his voice, pleading with the Lord that they might you know send his his word out to the nations of the world. This is the man on the day of his death. <clears throat> so Samuel Pierce Carey, it's interesting in, in, in his historians get a hero. And when they get a hero, they want to make that hero like larger than life. And one of the ways to make your hero larger than life and make is make sure everybody else is smaller. And so I think probably Samuel Pierce Carey, looking through some interesting glasses, sees Samuel Pierce larger than he probably was and sees Bedham lesser. Than he probably was. I've got to be careful with that because you know Bedham's like my guy, and so I don't want to put the white hat on him and a black hat on everybody else. Um, so we've got to be careful with that. But we want to make sure we go back and actually read again. We're back to primary sources. What does Bedham himself say? And fascinatingly, just like that 1759 circular letter, I happened to find a letter written by Bedham to Andrew Fuller in 1793. Now, I read about the letter in uh, a document that was written by A.G. Fuller, Andrew Gunton Fuller, I believe the son of Andrew Fuller. And A.G. Fuller writes a history of the Western Association. And in it, he mentions this letter written by Bedham to Fuller. And I thought, well, that's, that's fascinating. And then I thought, wouldn't it be great to find the letter? Well, sure enough, there it is, tucked away in the Angus. It's in those little pictures that I took, the whole letter. And there it is. And so I can read it. And I think I may have sent you guys, uh, I'm not, I, I don't think I sent you guys a copy of that. It's not, is it in that, is it in that document I sent to you? No, no, it's not there. Okay. Well, if you ever want it, I'll send it to you. It's, it's a great letter. And in it, he addresses... He addresses uh, Andrew Fuller in in three a, kind of a three paragraph letter, all right. And in the first section, it's just kind of some initial greetings. He talks about trials that he's undergone recently. In the second letter, uh, he talks about Fuller. Fuller had written to him, so this letter is a response to Fuller. Fuller's letter was saying, "I want to come to Morton on the Water." I want to talk to people about the BMS and I want to raise support and basically take an offering. And will you guys give some money? All right. Fuller's trying to promote the BMS. He's trying to raise money. Benham responds to him and says to him, you need to hold off on your visit. And the reason is he doesn't say we don't care about missions. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to hold off because things are right now in the Borton Church financially strained. And because it's a particular season of year, remember Borton is a village, it's a village town, a little, little big country village, surrounded by farmland, um, uh, harvest is going on, people aren't always in church. And Bedham says, I want you to hold off your visit basically till next summer. And if you do that, we'll have more people in church, um, finances will be better in our congregation, and we'll be able to actually give you more money for the work. 
So his reason for holding Fuller off is not that I'm I don't care. It's that if you come now, you're just not gonna you're not gonna get much. You need to wait. Um, and then he goes into a third paragraph, and um, in this third paragraph, he does kind of full disclosure to Fuller expresses his reluctance to support the Baptist Missionary Society. And just to kind of sum that up, uh, four, four things. Bedham expresses concern for the churches at home. Uh, Bedham is concerned for the churches in England. If all the good men get on boats and go overseas, what's going to happen to the churches here? So here's a man... 55 years of ministry in a local congregation, he has an intense concern for the churches in England. And he's concerned that they're going to they're gonna lose good men and there's a great need still at home. Um, also, he's old. We've already mentioned that several times. And he knows he's probably going to die soon. And in his mind, he has already decided who needs to follow him. And it's William Carey. And Fuller is talking about putting Carey on a boat and sending him to India. And I, I think it's very honest in this letter. Bedham is not trying to pull punches. He's not trying to hide things from Fuller. He is trying to say, look, you're about to send my guy over to India. And that's just not, that's not right. You can't do that. So um, it would be, it would be really interesting uh, for, to, to, to see if Samuel Pierce Carey, who wrote The Baptist Brainerd, who said of Bedham that he's just the aged Bedham, he's not concerned with the nations, he has no evangelistic spirit. I wonder what Samuel Pierce Carey would say if he read this letter from Bedham. Bedham wants to call the guy that's on the top of everybody's list to send as a missionary for the nations the guy who has written the inquiry into the obligation that we have to preach the gospel to the heathen, Benham wants to call that guy to follow him in ministry. That doesn't sound like a high Calvinist, doesn't sound like a, like a non-evangelistically minded man, doesn't sound like somebody who doesn't care about the nations. It sounds like somebody who wants to get the guy uh, that everybody loves in his pulpit. Uh, the third thing he says in this letter um, is, oh, um, uh, let's see, how to sum this up here. Uh, oh, he speaks about Carrie's motivations. Um, he 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 does not impugn in any way Carrie's motivation to go. Uh, so the, the, the motivation to go to the nations is a good motivation to Bedham. He sees that as a good thing. Now, the fourth thing he brings in here, and this opens up like, you know, a whole nother hour's worth of conversation, has to do with eschatology. And so we'll try to sum it up in 30 seconds or less. Um, Bedham doesn't believe that at this time, it is the time for... In the words of Haggai chapter 1, the time of rebuilding the house of the Lord. Now, dealing with like Fuller's eschatology and Carey's eschatology 
and uh, you had a real strong strain in the 18th century of a post-millennial type eschatology, all right? That the kingdom's going to spread throughout the world. Jonathan Edwards, post-millennial eschatology, the kingdom's going to spread. And one of the ways this is going to happen is by the rise of prayer and the rise of missions, all right? Fuller preaches a sermon just, oh, I don't know, a couple of years prior to this letter. In 1791, Fuller preaches a sermon on Haggai 1-2. And the title to the sermon is, The Instances, the Evil Nature, and the Dangerous Tendency of Delay in the Concerns of Religion. This is one of Fuller's sermons where he's saying, look, it's time. It's time to send Carrie. It's time to send somebody. It's time to go to the nations. Uh, because they're seeing something happening in the 18th century eschatologically that this is like the beginning of the end, the beginning of the day, of the dawn, of the latter rain type eschatology. And Bedham, Bedham is hinting in this letter that he disagrees with Fuller as to the timetable eschatologically about that this is not the day. He's not saying it shouldn't happen. He's not saying Kerry's a bad guy to do it. He's not saying Fuller's motives are wrong. He's just saying it's not the time. And so that opens up the whole discussion of 18th century eschatology amongst dissenters. And it's a fascinating study. And um, so maybe we can talk about that one day. But at this point, that's what he's saying. And he holds Fuller off. And I, I have not found out yet if Fuller comes the next summer. I would imagine he probably did. Uh, he was going around to all the churches raising raising funds. So he's not a supporter, but he's not a rejecter of its basic principles. It's just a matter of, of his eschatological disagreement and the concern he has for uh, the country of England. And, you know, granted... Probably some self-interest here. He needs somebody to take his spot. And he doesn't want the the, the, the top pick to go. And uh, find somebody else. Let, let, let Carrie come here. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing with that. And, uh, certainly interesting the letter that you have been able to share about uh, Bedham and Fuller conversing yeah. with one another. But uh, you previously alluded to some suffering that Bedham went through towards the end of his life. And so you've yeah. told us a little bit about that, but um, perhaps what lessons might we draw or what, what can Bedham teach us as one who has suffered? Well, you mentioned that and I, I, I want to share it. For additional content, check out our blog mastery at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.